philosophers would agree with that statement. Very few. In fact, this has historically been pretty much turned around, and the, an, an autonomous philosophy has dictated the presuppositions of theology, thus muting the voice of Scripture. And that is also Frey. Okay? So if you think about it, if you know much about the history of philosophy, philosophy has taken on, does take on the question of the existence of God. Seems to seems to feel like that it has the capability and the power to determine that. Uh, if if it has the right to determine if God exists or doesn't exist, then it probably has the right to determine what God's nature is, and that sort of thing. So the prolegomena of philosophy, dealing with theology. Um, Prolegomena is the introductory subject or discussion or discourse. Thought it interesting. Introductory. Okay, here we go. Here's the introductory. Okay, univocal, having one meaning and unambiguous and analogical with respect in which one thing is similar to another, knowledge. Okay, and a lot of, and a, the analogy of being. God's essay, his essential nature and essence and existence, the relation of his being to his attributes, the uh, nature as his nature as pure form and pure act. Um, val- let's see. Uh, the absence, the absence of him of anything potential, okay, etc. If God is unchanging, yes. If we say that God is unchanging, and we're not going to deal with any of these subjects, by the way. You you cannot ask any questions. I'm sorry, you cannot ask any questions about these. A perspective, a perspectival view of philosophy. This is frame. Okay, we've, we've, I believe we've used this term a number of times. What does frame mean by perspectival? Typically, he, he, he means a triad, that there are three points of view to, to the subject at hand. And each of those points of view has their own domain, but they also are interdependent on one another. So his perspectival view of the doctrine of God is what? Authority, control, and covenant presence. Those are the three particular perspectives that he has hit upon as, as sort of what, how he, he feels that Scripture presents God from those particular perspectives. And so he, he puts those together in a triad. All right? Well, he's done the same thing with philosophy, interestingly enough. We basically have metaphysics or the theory of being. We have epistemology, the theory of knowledge. And we have value theory which includes ethics, aesthetics, and other, other subjects. All right? So basically what you have is you have the, the sort of heady uh, abstract thought that takes place in, the, in, the two, in, in metaphysics and epistemology. And then you, you take that and you've got to kind of make application of it. And that is where value theory comes in. All right. Okay. Um, each of these are distinct, and yet they are have dependencies with each other. And he says the covenantal world view of Scripture encourages us to see lordship as an ethical relationship that has epistemological and metaphysical implications, although it permits other perspectives. All right. That's frame. All right, ethics. What is ethics? Okay, I got this from the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy. Ethics is the study of the concepts involved in practical reasoning. 
Good, right, duty, obligation, virtue, freedom, rationality, choice. Also, the second order study of the objectivity, subjectivity, relativism, or skepticism that may attend claims made in these. Metaethics. And this is Frame's definition of metaethics. General methods for approaching ethical problems. So today we are only going to look at metaethics. Um, so what we're doing is we're taking a very bird's eye view of the history of ethics and then a, another bird's eye view of Frame's framing. <laughs> okay, Frame's how he puts together uh, his view of ethics given this perspectival per, uh, approach that he has. All right, so metaethics. There's three types. There's existential ethics, three main types, teleological ethics and deontological ethics. Generally, however, they, most philosophers use a mixed approach. They'll use pieces of two and sometimes all three approaches to ethics, okay? So what, are, what is existential ethics? Existential ethics is the view that ethics is essentially a matter of human inwardness, a matter of character and motive. Ethical behavior is an expression of what a person is. There is no standard outside the individual. We give our decisions value. So when we make a decision, it is our decision and how we approach that decision that gives that decision value. All right. Historical examples. Well, the sophists, they denied the existence of any objective truth. If there's no objective truth, where does one get truth? One gets truth from oneself. The Socratic. So Socrates was existential certain sense. This is, this, this is Socrates' primary philosophical statement. Know thyself. All right? Aristotelian and Thomistic and Hegelian uh, ethics are said to have been in this. I'm going to take it face value. Uh, so, uh, uh, ethics of a, uh, are considered a matter of self-realization or self-actualization, okay? My ethics define who I am. Sartre, self-realization without the self. Okay, so we're entering, Sartre is in the early part of the, the 20th century, and this is where skepticism really begins to drop into existential ethics. If we, if I define what is right, what the standard of ethics are, and I can't even really prove that I exist, what is the foundation of my ethic? And this, is what, this was the problem that Sartre began to deal with. Since he denied the existence of any objective human nature, he argued that ethical behavior was at best an expression of human freedom, of our difference for all things with objective natures. <laughs> the 20th century philosophy really got weird, to just put it bluntly because it became so skeptical about any real knowledge whatsoever. All right? So then, coming out of Sartre, it's pretty hard. I mean, if, you, if, if, you, if you're going to go down the path of Sartre, the next thing you know, you got nothing. So, postmodernism. So, Leuthard and Derrida, uh, Derrida, I'm sorry, would be the purest philosophical form of existential ethics. No way of knowing if anything is true of arriving at any objective value. Okay, so existential ethics. If we start with ourselves, we end up with nothing.
Yes. Okay, so the statement, Dennis is basically observing that this basically, if you look at kind of how that was laid out, you just see how things begin to disintegrate. It's starting, you know, the whole thing is falling apart, and it becomes completely subjective. It becomes completely self, the autonomous self, doing whatever the autonomous self chooses, okay? We see that in spades in our culture today, right? So pick almost anything, and that's what's going on. That's the ethic that we have today. Is that what you're basically saying? All right. And, it, and so, and so that, that whole degeneration that's pre- presented there, you can just kind of almost see it in our culture. Well, hopefully we will have time to come back to that. All right. Existential ethics, the critique, okay? Non-existentialists have appreciated sometimes and appropriated the existential emphasis upon the inner life. Good motives as a source of right action. Even the Bible teaches that out of the heart comes the issues of life, human speech, true forgiveness, true love, all other ethical good and evil. But the skepticism of the postmodernists is where many resist. It lays claim that there is no objective value, no truth is, is itself. And, and then basically, he couldn't help but take a little stab at the postmodernists. No truth, the claim that no truth exists, is itself a truth claim. And he couldn't help but take a stab at him. Okay. Teleological ethics. Okay, teleos means end or goal. Okay, so teleological ethics. What is it then that would define teleological ethics? Real quick. Huh? Results? Who said that? Tom. Okay, yes. Bingo. Okay. Or, oh, Dennis wants to dispute. You thinking out loud there, Dennis? Yeah, I'm thinking out loud. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and and uh, I, th- I believe Tom would say amen to that. <laughs> but I don't believe that's exactly what's going on here. Actually, end ought to trigger. The end justifies the means. Teleological ethics. Okay? So it is the end, the goal, what is it you're trying to accomplish that justifies if in fact you just if if in fact your ethic achieves the goal that you have set for it, you have good ethics. Alright? Now, it's important to choose your goal, so what should your goal be? Huh? Oh happiness. Come on, man. That's what everybody wants. All right, so definition. Ethics are defined by by its goal, and that goal should be happiness or pleasure. All right? Okay, I think we can, I mean, you know, I guess the philosophers believe, man, if we pick one of those, if we pick one of those, ain't nobody going to dispute that. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody prefers pleasure over pain, right? Okay, so all human beings naturally seek to be happy, maximize pleasure, and minimize pain. This rests upon the belief that this fact may be shown by sense experience and empiricist theory of knowledge. Okay, so basically the part, part of it is, is that philosophers say, well, what can we prove? Well, we can prove by a large enough sampling that everybody wants to be happy. All right? So we use empirical data. We'll prove that everybody wants to be happy, and then we'll base our ethics upon that. Okay, all human behavior is judged in terms of how it contributes to happiness or pleasure. Right? All right. So here we go. Historical examples. Okay, the Serenics, who were the gross hedonists. All right. Pleasure is the only good, and it must be sought without regard for the future. All right. So moment by moment. What's going to make me happy? What's going to give me the most pleasure? 
That's what I need to do. Even if I don't want to do it. That's what I need to do. Okay? That's the ethic. The Epicurean said, boy, I tell you what, that gets old fast. All right? So, yeah, it is pleasure, but it's pleasure rightly understood. Okay? So, uh, and then, so then it becomes a life of balance and prudence. Okay? So we want pleasure, but not too much, you know, and we, we need to keep things in balance. And so the Epicureans worked on a balanced, living a balanced life. And then the utilitarians, oh, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, all acts and rules are judged to be, okay, so there's two types of utilitarian ethic. There is the, the act utilitarianism, and there's the rule utilitarianism. Okay, so what's the difference? Well, so rule utilitarianism says, okay, what are, let's, let's look at those, those things, those acts that, gener, that generate the best outcome for the most people, and we'll make rules. And then we'll follow those rules based upon that. Act utilitarianism says, mm, no, we're going to basically, each, each different situation is unique, we need to analyze it. We need to pick the right outcome, the, the right action that will achieve the right outcome, and then do it. Okay? All right, Tila, the critique. Okay. Well, so what is the greatest good? How is pre- pleasure to be rightly understood? What is the right goal? Upon what basis may one claim their definition is correct? All right, so basically, again, postmodernists get a hold of this and carry it straight into subjectivism, okay, and skepticism. The greatest happiness for the greatest, the most people is a maxim that has been used in the past century for racism and to justify unbelievable atrocities upon minorities. So it's proven to be an ethic that is intuitively anything but ethical and moral. How do we calculate the means of attaining happiness for all members of society? The system falls under its own weight. Okay, Hume. You cannot, with any authority, reason ought from what is. So your empirical efforts... In this case, don't work, according to Hume. Uh, G.E. Moore, who's substantial, a little bit, who's several generations after Hume, basically said you cannot find good reductively. Again, we're going to do our samplings. We're going to empirically determine things, and then build our ethic based upon that that empirical data. Basically, Moore said that's a that's a naturalistic fallacy. Okay. You cannot equate the, what is good with, uh, with basically things that, particular things that are desirable. Okay? Deontological ethics, duty. This was a new term to me, to be honest with you. I'd, I'd never heard this before, but it actually does exist. I mean, it is, it is real. I mean, it's... Wikipedia uses it, so <laughs> there you go. There's, if, if Wikipedia does it, well, it must be. Okay, anyway. Um, ethics, duty. Does, what, does any particular philosopher come into mind when you hear the word duty? Let's see who we have in the way of philosophers here. Who comes to mind? Duty. You can't. You be quiet now. You, that would be cheating for you to answer. Either one of you guys. Okay. Immanuel Kant and the categorical imperative. All right. So if you'll recall, Kant, it was actually David Hume who basically questioned cause and effect. So a little quick. Okay. So little, here's, here's one of the few things that I remember from Sproul, okay? David Hume was the son of a Presbyterian preacher. But as he grew up, he became skeptical about, 
Well, he struggled with his faith, and then he decided, I must not be one of the elect. Okay? He wasn't a Christian. He, he knew he wasn't a Christian. And so, in order to deal with that, he, became, he began working on, well, maybe I'm not one of the elect because nobody's elected, because there is no God. And he began working, up, he became a philosopher who basically set out to prove that God did not exist. Okay? Now, I'm not sure that he consciously did that, but this is Sproul now talking. And so David Hume, and so what, what is one of the, one of the great uh, apologetics uh, proofs for the existence of God? Cause and effect. There must, for every effect, there must be a cause. Okay? So, regression, what's the first cause? Okay? We, have, we see effects all over the place. And we work them backwards. What's the first cause? First cause must be God. Okay? So Hume set out to undermine that, that proof. And he actually began questioning whether we really can prove cause and effect. Sure, you see a, in, a, in the game of pool, you see the cue ball hit another ball, and the ball moves. But and the truth of the matter is, is what you see is a stream of sense perception. And from that, what you see, from those, that sense perception, you extrapolate that the cue ball caused the ball to move. How can you know that that's actually what happened? was Kant's argument. That shook up, I'm sorry, that was Hume's argument. Hume read that, and he said, it woke me from my philosophical slumbers. And he began to write his great treatise on transcendentalism. Okay, so um, Kant basically said, okay, if this is true, there will be no religion, there can be no science. There can be hardly, there can be no knowledge if, if Hume is true. So he set out to disprove Hume. And so what he came up with is he says, yes, actually reality is divided into two realms, the noumenal and the phenomenal, right? And he said most things exist in the phenomenal it is the reality that we live in, okay? And, we can, and, and anything that exists in the, the phenomenal, we can study and we can know. But there are a number of things that we can't study and we can't know. And those things exist in the noumenal, in the noumenal realm. Anybody know what those three? It turned out to be three things. Anybody know, know what those three things are? Take a stab at the first one. Sorry? Truth? Mm. No, I mean, anything that's in the phenomenal room, we can study that and we can know that it's true. So truth can be. So God. So the first thing that's in the noumenal, the first thing we can't know is God. The second thing we can't know is the self. We can't know ourselves for sure. And we can't know essences. Okay. So obviously everybody's brows wrinkled. It turns out that Kant turned the philosophical world upside down with his theory. All right? And so Kant, having destroyed, for example, an ethic of an, an, an existential ethic, all right, and having taken God out of the noble realm, suddenly he's got no basis for ethics. And so he begins. Develop, he comes back around and he starts redeveloping things. So he actually works out proofs. Even though we can't know God, he works on proofs for the existence of God. And even though we can't know the self, he works on proofs for the existence of the self. And he needs a new basis for ethics. And he comes up with the categorical imperative. All right. That's background. So let's get into it. 
All right, ethics is a matter of doing one's duty. Okay? You do it for duty's sake. You do it because this is what you ought to do. Remember, Hume said, you cannot reason to ought from is. Objective ethical standards, absolute duties, can be found in some way. They are self-attesting. They are supremely authoritative. Ethical behavior is simply the fulfillment of those duties. Historical examples. So Plato... Plato and his, his, his base, he basically had the idea of goodness, of, of the good. You remember Plato had the realm of the ideals. So the, the, what we see in the world, Plato almost, he almost had a phenomenal and noumenal construction of reality because the world that we see is a is simply a manifestation of various particulars of the ideals that exist in the realm of the ideal, including good. All right? The idea of good, it's a self-attesting value that transcends all others. And this is Plato who argued these things. All right? And it's known in a non-empirical way. The cynics and Stoics called for the rejection of pleasure, and and um, okay. And then other, his, okay, and then we get to Kant. Okay, so Kant basically says basically you do you you do what is right for duty's sake. And he used the categorical imperative to prove to, to begin working on, okay, well then what are those duties? So the categorical imperative. It's stated three different ways. Universality, in terms of universality, act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become universal law. So only do things that you think ought, everybody ought to do. Humanity, act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never merely as a means to an end, but also at the same time as the end. Okay? What does that almost sound like? Almost sounds like the golden rule, uh, but it is not. And Kant was accused of, of just restating the golden rule, and he said, no, no, that's not what this is. Right. Autonomy, in terms of autonomy. Thus, the third practical principle follows as the ultimate condition of their harmony with practical reason. So you take these two first two principles, combine them with practical reason. What is practical reason? ethics, uh, the idea of the will of every rational being is a universally, a universally legislating will. I'm not going to explain it because I don't understand it. Well, I think in Kant's case, he would argue that that is not that is not what he's arguing for. That these that basically, if you if apply these principles correctly, you will arrive at at uh, rules for living that are are very much in line with, you know, that that it's not doing what you want to do. That there are these 
uh, uni- that, that there are these universal truths that we can get to. All right? He would have argued. Now, that would have been Kant. But you can see in how Kant has constructed this that people can, are going to start taking that. And as you say, they're going to say, well, that's nothing more than my autonomous self dictating what is and isn't. So you're right in that sense. In that sense. Which was was part of his problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, but he, I think, he held by use of these principles, human humanity could deduce the absolute self-attesting principles. And, and he would have argued that it really isn't individual selves. It is all of humanity. The, the universally self-legislating will, if you pull them all, put it all together, we're going to arrive at these absolute self-attesting principles. And they're not necessarily what, I, what any one individual wants, but what are the actual universals. So he, he believed in universals. All right. So critique. Well, deducing an agreed-upon set of absolutes, self-testing principles that everyone agrees upon has proven elusive at best, if not impossible. So, it devolves, I mean, it, it does go exactly where you're saying, Blake. Okay, mixed approaches. So, if you'll notice, um, like Socrates, Plato ended up on one of, on, on the teleological and I put Socrates in, um, or I didn't, Frame put Socrates in uh, the epistemological ethics. Well, how do we know about Socrates? His student. The only way, Socrates did not write down a single thing his whole life. The only way we know about Socrates and his teaching is because his number one pupil told us about it. Who was his number one pupil? Plato. Okay, so Plato would be an example of a mixed mixed approach. He, He was both existential and teleological. Okay, in truth, more persuasive systems and thinkers have not fallen into any one camp or another, but have drawn from two or more. This is true of Plato and Kant and others. The issue has been that lacking some absolute, they all lack authority, and there is no agreement on the absolute, or if there is even an absolute, and so they become matters of preference. Well, yes. Okay, so, Christian ethics. First of all, uh, Frame does a bit of a critique of the secular meta-ethics that we've just covered. He says the fundamental problem here is unbelief. Surprise, surprise. Looking for answers by looking at the self, existential, the world, teleological, or to logic and reason, deontological. They have no reason to think that they can get consistent answers to their questions, and clearly they haven't. They require some other unifying source, some other idol. The problem with idols is everybody has a different one. Christian ethics accepts only God's word as final. Okay, so if you'll recall, when we started, when 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 I introduced this this uh, topic in the first lesson, what was the first thing I said you had to resolve in your mind? Do you believe the Bible? is inerrant and true. If you do, then it's going to dictate how you believe. If you do not, you're going to end up here. 
Okay? So, if we believe that Scripture is inerrant and true, then that's where we're going to start. And so, the Christian ethic has a definition of the absolute. Right? Okay, but let's point out that that word, while it is supremely found in Scripture, it is also revealed in the world. It is also revealed in the self. This is Frank. Makes me a little queasy. Okay? But, we go and we look at Scripture. Preeminently in Scripture, Deuteronomy... Okay, here we go. Deuteronomy 6, 9... 6, six, six through 9. And these are the words that I command you today. Shall be, they, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk with, of them when you are sit at your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you are lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on me as forelets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right here. Basically, like God said, these words, they need to be right here. Right? Okay. Matthew five seventeen through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that... Of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How depressing would that be without the blood of Christ? Second Timothy fourteen seventeen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How huge is that? That the being outside His creation has spoken into it. Okay. So we've also said, however, that it is revealed in the world. Romans 1, 18 through 20. He also mentioned Psalms 19, but actually Psalms 19 covers all three of these. Um. But anyway, Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What are we talking about here? We're talking about ethical things. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. We're talking about ethical matters. Okay? But it is revealed from heaven. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay? And then in the self, Genesis 1, 27 through 31, So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So what, is he, what are we saying here? We're saying that just in, the very, in our very nature, the way God has made us, there is revelatory truth about God. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree and seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Ephesians 4.24 And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Colossians 3.10 And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. For the sake of time, we'll not do Psalm 119, but you should, if you have a chance, go out and read, go and read Psalm 119 in the light of what we've just said. I'm sorry, not Psalm 19. Psalm 19, right. Okay, Christian metaethics. So we have an existential perspective, one that treats the self as a perspective a vantage point or an angle of vision from which to view the full range of ethical norms and data. It does justice to the subjective side of human life, particularly your sense of the direct presence of God. Boy, I tell you what, needed an editor, didn't I? In His Holy Spirit, recreating us to know and to reflect His holiness. But it does not result in skepticism because it is, a, it is anchored in the objectivity of God's Word. Situational perspective. Studies the situation as the milieu in which God's norms are to be repl- applied. And the normative perspective. So, it's kind of mixed some terms here a little bit, but the, obviously the existential perspective ties back to existential ethics. The, the situational perspective, that ties back to teleological ethics, okay? And the normative perspective will tie back to deontological ethics, okay? To determine what Scripture says about a particular ethical problem, we must know more than the, than the text of Scripture. To know what Scripture says about abortion, we must know something about abortion, So we're talking about practical reason here. We're talking about how do we take the principles that are laid out in Scripture and properly apply them to the ethical questions that we have today. Some questions we have today that mankind has probably... I I realize uh, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, but there's some pretty strange stuff coming down the pike right now. Right? To know what Scripture says about nuclear weapons, we need to know something about nuclear weapons. So, odd as it may sound, we cannot know what Scripture says without knowing at the same time something of God's revelation outside of Scripture. Keeping in mind, we are talking about ethical, we're talking about ethics. How do we apply the, the, the principles that God has laid out in Scripture to particular things that are happening in our culture that we are confronted with as individuals, decisions that we have to make on a day-to-day basis? 
When dealing with an ethical problem, we need to ask three questions. What is the problem? That is the situational perspective. What does the scripture say about it? That will be the normative perspective. And what changes need to be done to do the right thing? That would be, what must I do to do the right thing? Okay? That would be the existential perspective. Okay, so then he cuts those into some applications, which are not really applications as from my definition of applications, but nevertheless. He, does, he, does, he is going to talk about how can this be played out in the secular world, in the Christian world, and in the personal world. Okay, so before we go there, uh, right ethics is complicated. Today, the world, the situational realm, to be rightly understood, often demands specialization. That is my paraphrase. Okay, here's what he says. Put this way, and he's referring to the three questions that I just read, okay, that we should do. Put this way, the scheme sounds simple enough, and yet it is also helps us to understand why ethical questions also become difficult. For ethical judgments involve exegetical, empirical, and psychological knowledge, which in turn in, involves logic and other skills, logical and other skills. Not only professional theologians, but Christians of all walks of life need to help in the ethical enterprise. It has value in the secular world. Not only philosophers, but non-philosophers as well, are searching today for ethical stability. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not, I, I hope one day we get there. This, this chaos that we're in right now is such a crazy thing, but nevertheless, we are living at a time when ethical issues are widely discussed. They are dis, when they discuss ethical problems, Christians can easily get a hearing from people who would otherwise have no interest in Christian theology. Okay, that's what he says. I'm not sure that I agree with it. Okay, it has value in the Christian community. The theonomic wing tend to see the law of God in Scripture as the one source of ethical knowledge. Dispensationalists, charismatics, and others, and I realize these are strange bedfellows, fear that an emphasis on law will lead to legalism, and thus they tend to develop dangerously subjective notions of divine guidance. Two other groups find the source of ethical certainty in, historical, in the historical situation, those who are oriented towards biblical theology or redemptive history, and those who seek to find God's leading in present-day events, one extreme variety of this tendency being liberation theology. So he's claiming here that by taking a perspectival view of ethics, that we can kind of work together towards a more biblical ethic than the sort of, as he mentions, the, the extremes that he's pictured here with these, within this statement. This ethical perspective reflects our lordship perspective. The three perspectives reflect the lordship attributes of God. The situational perspective reflects his control. For our situation is always the result of his universal creation and providence. Now think about that and its implications on your ethic. The normative perspective reflects God's authority. He reveals himself authoritatively in all his works, but particularly in his written word. The covenant constitution of the people of God. And the existential perspective reflects God's covenant presence as his bearers witness, as he bears witness to himself in our inmost being. So the meta-ethic developed in this chapter is an ethic of lordship. So here's his covenantal triad. 
authority. And on the authority side, he puts the deontological or normative part of ethics. On the control side, we have the teleological and the situational world, or, or the actual world. Okay, so the physical world. And in covenant presence, he puts the self or the existential. Okay. And I, but I do think we just need to listen to him carefully because he's made that very, very clear. That, that, that scripture is the preeminent thing. Now, the, the problem becomes that, that if you don't, and, and this has been true of all philosophers, frankly, the, the, the students don't exactly listen to the teacher. And they, and they, they take some of the ideas that, t- t- that the teacher teaches, but they don't, they don't remember the qualifiers, and the next thing you know, they're off the rails, okay? So, number one, okay, so this is frames, this is frames framing of Christian ethics, all right? And he started out with, it starts with God's revelation. Now, the thing that makes you queasy is, is that while he does say that Scripture is preeminent, and I believe he would say that every other piece of revelation that we talk about here, if we look at the revelation that comes from the world, we look at it through the grid of Scripture. Scripture is what informs our understanding of that revelation. Okay? But, nevertheless, there is revelation here. Again, if you're going to apply the right ethic, the right response to abortion, you've got to understand what abortion is. If you don't understand that abortion is the taking of human life, then you're going to have a different response to it than if you do. And in our culture today, it's, it's, there has been a blatant effort by the abortionist camp to say that the fetus is not a human being. Yes, so, so, so basically what we've done is we've completely depersonalized it. We've taken it away from the, the realm of of, of what it is, and we focus upon, we, we call it, a, we, call it a, we, we put it in the realm of rights, and a woman's right to personal health and good health. And we make it a health issue and a right for a woman to have access to it. Okay? And you can see, if you don't understand... What's the name of the movie that's out right now? Un, un what? Unplanned? Okay. That, that, the, the, the impact of that movie is that it makes it very clear that that fetus is a human being. Okay? And when it does... If you never thought it was a human being, and, and so the, 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 the woman that that story is about, what it did is what, what did it do? It changed her ethic once she understood what was happening. Okay, that applies in spades with everything that we're confronted with today. The first thing we have to do we have to ask this question, what is the problem? And we have, to, we have to be sure that we understand the problem. True. Okay, How, uh, you're right. I mean, but, but I mean, that's, that's the nature of fallenness. And, and uh, okay, so real quick, guys, didn't I, I was worried this. 
So one of the things I was going to try to do is we would try to maybe bring this down to home. Okay, so there's a number of things coming at us really fast, all right? The reason why I took issue with, um, with Frame's characterization of, of, of Christian ethics to the secular world has anybody heard what, have, how many of y'all have heard what, heard what is going on at Yale? Okay, so at Yale, Yale University, the Wagner, what is, I don't remember her first name, but Wagner, she, is the, she was the chief um, lawyer on the cake, wedding cake uh, case before the Supreme Court. She was invited to come to Yale University to speak. Twenty different student organizations protested her being allowed to speak on their campus. Okay, and so what was the what was Yale's response? Yale's response was to number one, cancel her her speech, tell her she couldn't come, and then they turned around and they passed policy that basically says that they will not recognize nor fund any outside um, work that a student does if they work for an organization that does not provide non-discrimination. They do mention religion, but the fundamental thing based on gender roles. So any lawyer who then gets an internship, say, at one of the Christian organizations, they will get no recognition for that internship because that organization does not meet the LGBTQ requirements of non-discrimination. Is that an ethical problem? And how do we respond to it? Another one, 14 guys in Dallas back in, the middle, back in the summer of 2018 got together and they got to talking about social justice and the church's response to social justice. And they grew very concerned as they talked about it because what's going on and what's being taught in some of the churches and, and being, and being and embraced in terms of social justice in the, in the churches, they saw very, very uh, crucially perverting the gospel. So they sat down and they wrote a statement. Okay, it's called the Social Justice and the Gospel Statement. You can go out on the website it's, uh, and, and, look, and read their statement. And it's signed by 14 guys. And, um, and the, the initial signers are 14 guys. John MacArthur is one of those signers, okay? Well, there's one guy who is visibly missing from that, from that statement, okay? It's Al Mohler. And he has some deep concerns about some of the ideas that are in that statement. Now, he's hopeful that it generates vigorous discussion on some of the issues that are being dealt with in social justice. But how do we navigate the dilemma? Is it an ethical problem? Yes, it is. Okay? So... This is complicated. This is hard. In this day and time, we need some Christian thinkers to step forward and help us through the waters that we are, that we are attempting to sail or we are being forced to sail through because it is very difficult. But folks... You need to take, you know, you, we need, I believe, individually to be very serious about looking at what are the right responses to some of these questions. It's, 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 not, it's not straightforward. 
It's complicated. So, anyway, sorry. Uh, ran out of time. All right. I'm sorry? Uh, social justice and the gospel. Just if you'll type in social justice and the gospel, it'll, it'll be one of the first things that pops up.